0: How many details of Rob's recent life
1: are we allowed to probe on on air? You can ask. I'll just—I'll be elliptical when I need to be.
2: I have a dream. This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all
0: men
1: are created equal. My guy
2: as
0: well? With all due respect, that's a birth malarkey. I've said it before, and I'll say it
2: again. Democracy simply
0: doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Rickettsay Podcast with
3: Peter Robinson and Rob Locke. He's back? I'm James and Today, our guest is the only one we need, it's Senator Tom Cotton. So let's have ourselves a podcast.
1: I can hear you! <laughs>
3: Welcome, everybody. This is the Ricochet Podcast, episode number 561. Would you like to be here when we have episode number 1,000? You can help by going to ricochet.com, joining up and being part of the most stimulating conversation and community on the web. I'm James Lavix in Minneapolis. Rob Long is somewhere, as is his wont, Peter Robinson firmly ensconced in Bucala, California, which, which has fended off the disaster that would have been if they'd elected a black man as governor, apparently. And here in Minnesota, it's a beautiful day. They just mowed the lawn, so when I went outside, there was that wonderful perfume of, 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 odor of two-stroke motor oil and fresh-cut grass, and everything seemed right in the world. I was happy to be here, and I thought, you know, when Cicero went out in his garden the day that he was executed, he probably thought, boy, this place looks nice, and... I can smell the flowers and the rest of it. So you never know what's coming. Um, that being said, uh, it's good to be here. Good to have you back, Rob. You have been bouncing around the globe. I have been. we get yeah. to that in a bit, I suppose. But I suppose we should ask Peter, since he's in the thick of it, right in the middle of the post-recall California, was that, as some say, the the conservatives, just the GOP getting high
0: on their own supply, believing that such a thing was possible in the first place? Well, about a month ago, it looked possible. The polls showed that the recall was either too close. Excuse me. The recall election had two questions on the ballot, the first of which, and it turned out to be the only one of which that mattered. Should the governor be recalled or not? Then there was a list of 45 candidates to replace him if he were recalled. One of those was Larry Elder, our guest on this program a few weeks ago. A month ago, it looked as though question one, should the governor be recalled, was too close to call or tilting slightly in the yes, he darned well should direction. And and then the Democrats opened up their barrage. The governor seems to have raised $70 million and spent a lot of it, if not all of it. I don't know that the figures are public yet. On top of that, he had the support of all the media. There were all kinds of independent expenditures expenditures from teachers' unions and uh, public employees' unions. So they outspent the pro-recall side by at least 10 to 1 and more like 20 or 30 to 1 with what result? And they tarred Larry Elder, who was the leading Republican candidate. All the polls showed him with more support than anybody else. Not a huge amount, but enough to get elected. And uh, they reproduced – the results of the presidential election almost exactly california voted two for one for biden over trump and two for one to keep governor newsom instead of recalling him how did they do this they painted they ran against donald trump all over again so uh it's a disappointment for us expected i suppose in some ways because democrats so utterly dominate this state, the politics at the grassroots level, they have organization, and they have money. But this does not bode ill for Republicans, it's just California being California. That's my brief conclusion. Well, Rob, when they called Larry Elder the black face
3: of white supremacy, which is really an astonishing redefinition, it kind of tells you where we're going in the future, doesn't it? That there is an inescapable bond between one's race, skin color, and the set of policies that you're expected to have.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, nobody nobody on this podcast wants to hear this. But the <laughs> California, Republican, California Republican Party is a disaster. They ran against the California Republican Party. California is not a conservative state. The Democrats didn't steal their supermajority. They won it because the California mm-hmm. Republican Party is filled with morons. And they believe the way people, partisans believe, that actually everyone agrees with us. We just need to shout louder. And so it is very easy. I mean, I, I think the, the, the Democrats overspent if they spent two to one. They didn't need to. They Far need to more run. than two to one. Yeah, Far more did, than two to one. They just need to run against Republicans. And Republicans in California need to decide whether they want to continually play Lucy in the football or they want to look more carefully. At um, okay, what I, 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 which by the way they may do, they may do in the general. I mean, the, the, this is a is a very these recall elections are very weird. It's like you got to think two things would go to go in. It's not a normal election day. So, but when there's an actual general which is coming up. You, you could you, – it's conceivable a Republican, uh, a Republican governor could win, but he will be a liberal Republican governor. He will be a rhino. That is what's going to win in California if you want a Republican to win. Well, Otherwise, well, you can lose.
3: Okay. So here's the deal. In other words, you have to say people are tired of homeless encampments and their streets and their parks being overtaken by tents and needles and feces and prostitution and the rest of it. A Republican who is not in touch with California will say, I'm going to get rid of those. The only way to win is to be a rhino and say, I'm going to get rid of half of them and make the streets 50 percent.
1: No, no, that's (laughs) wrong. But that's not true. I mean, the the, the, the L.A. County sheriff who last night, I don't really know what his politics are, but, you know, probably a nominal Democrat. Even if in his heart of hearts, like all law enforcement officers, he's a Republican. He took charge in L.A. County and actually did. Powerful things. By the way, people I know in California have said, in L.A. anyway, that things have gotten a lot better, not just because of him, but because everyone, all the Democrats in power are scared. Look, Republicans have to decide in California. I mean, Republicans in Texas don't have to decide this. Republicans in Wyoming do not have to decide this. Republicans in Florida do not have to decide this. Republicans in California have to decide if they want to win or if they want to cry. And they have spent almost two decades crying, and that's what you get. You just that's the kid. That's the state that was delivered to you. How do they Uh, win? uh, uh, How do they win in the education issue? Uh, Well, they have to weasel word it and be rhinos. That's how you win in California, Republican. You be a rhino. You be exactly the kind of politician that uh, conservatives, uh, other states, and other areas despise. I, that's Again, how you win, be, and if that, you don't, that's, that's, that's okay if you don't want to win. Or you persuade, but you right, don't I, go through I, I the delusion that. of saying we secretly are really popular. Because we I understand secretly are not. But what, what, I don't what, think anybody
0: believed that for a moment. Anyway, I will agree in one regard and demure in two. In the notion, that to the extent that the California Republican Party is a catastrophe, it certainly is. There's almost no structure, Republican Party structure left out here, at all which is why it's a mistake, in my judgment, to talk about what the Republicans need to do. There's no functioning, governing body that really right. summons or represents Republicans across the state of California. I, I also have to—I do know people who are struggling with the party apparatus to try to make it meaningful and useful, and I have to tell you, Rob, just as a matter of objective observation, they're not morons. There are some extremely— Intelligent, very dedicated people. I'm sure trying I'm sure. to do. Your general, if this were had been a general election, maybe Falconer, the former mayor of San Diego, would have won the nomination. Everything you say he, makes sense way, if you're talking win. about. Yeah, if you're talking exactly, everything you say. He's he's the California formula that you continue to press, and that who knows might succeed. Is uh, conservative or moderate on. Finance and law and order, but liberal on social issues. That would have been Falconer, that would have been John Cox, but there was no nominating process. This was a recall election. So Larry Elder had the best name right. recognition and, frankly, the most, the, the message that cut through the general fog of 45 candidates the best.
1: Um, by I, I, wait, I say that Larry Elder, Larry, Larry Elder was on the podcast, he was dynamite. Yeah. I, was, I sent him money. Like, I want more Larry Elder, I say, in, in, in California. But, you know, the problem is, if you're a talk show host, there's a trillion hours of talk that they can pull yeah, out. And that's use right. The, sec- the second point I wanted to mirror, Rob said that
0: the Democrats ran against the Republican Party of California. That's not what I saw. I saw the Democrats running against Donald Trump. Donald Trump. and And wrapping Donald Trump around Larry Elder's neck. Just as Rob said, Larry Elder's a talk show host. There were plenty of things he said, and he was certainly pro Trump. Okay, so they did that. Um,
3: What is there to say? Uh, uh, Probably the formula you.
0: Go ahead. The middle class evaporates
3: in California. They move out to places where they can thrive, and, and you're, left it's too, fast. you're left with a stratified society in which the top part votes Democrat because it's the noble, virtuous thing to do that any decent feeling person would do, and because they are personally insulated from the ground level manifestations of the policies for which they vote. The people who are underneath them vote because they want the state to give them more things and to give them more funding and more of this. So, I mean, it works perfectly for the Democrats because the top part will go right along and go up and attend the galas where they're fancy outfits and flutes of champagne and the other people will say look we want better schools so the only mechanism to deliver that is the school system that we have in the teachers union so please give them more money without any strings that seems to be how it works
0: and it yeah once you reach once you pass a certain tipping point one party becomes the only game i was talking just what was it yesterday or the day before with a business guy here who does work with people over in the Central Valley, and he said there are a lot of people. Oh, He does agricultural investing. Anyway, there are a lot of good farmers over there in the Central Valley. Central Valley is, to the extent that there's a Republican Party left in California, it inhabits the Central Valley. And there are a lot of people over there who are at least nominally Democrats because that's the only way to get into the game of politics in California. A one-party system is very hard to reverse, and it has happened
1: here. Yeah, we'll, we'll we and, and I think Peter's right, and we we'll, and I hope he's right, and we'll see what happens in the general, where it seems to me that a moderate Rhino Republican has a real shot, as they always do when the California governor seems to be um, incredibly incompetent, as he is. But, but look, Republicans are going to have to, you know, I don't get, get into this, but Republicans are going to have to deal with the fact that Trump is unpopular in many places. And he is in a California useful, for sure. And he is a useful villain the way Jimmy Carter was for the Republicans and Nancy Pelosi is. He is a galvanizing force for the opposition and Republicans are just gonna have to accept that and figure out a way around it or figure out a way to, to combat it. But that's the given. Those are the facts on the ground, which I know Trump right supporters don't want to hear. Which is why, which is why I never talk about it. Cut this out. I would. Lo- I, I you are correct. I would love to go back
0: to the Ronald Reagan of, to the California of Ronald Reagan and Pete, Pete Wilson. It's gone. If Rob is saying that California, that Republicans in California need to do the same thing that Republicans in Massachusetts and Maryland have done, which is to embrace candidates such as Charlie Baker, now the Republican governor of Massachusetts, and Larry Hogan, the Republican governor of Maryland, I'm all for it. It would be a dramatic improvement.
3: Well, if you want to disagree with Rob about that, you can send him an email. <laughs> at, at a smart mail. I don't know what his name is because Rhino Squish was probably taken. So Rob may be Rhino Squish <laughs> 943. <laughs> he is speaking of this wonderful new fancy mail system. Listen to this. Don't be like Rob. Hop on Startmail right now and get your username before somebody else grabs it. Why would I want to do that, you say? I've got Google. i got Yahoo. Eh. Free email services like Gmail and Yahoo aren't really free. You pay with your privacy. In fact, Internet giants like Big Tech bank on exploiting your data and selling it to the highest bidder. Your business plan? Google has it. Your medical records? Yahoo can sell them to drug companies. The data these companies can sell on you is open up to all sorts of trouble. Intrusive ads, phishing attacks, identity theft. Well, to keep myself safe, I trust Start Mail. StartMail. StartMail it keeps my email private, period. Every email can be encrypted, even if the recipient doesn't use encryption. When you delete an email in Startmail, it is, poof, gone forever. They use their own servers, not Amazon's, which means they can't be put out of business like Parler. Switching to Startmail is seamless, too. You can easily transfer all of your current email data, so there's no starting from scratch. Startmail is also backed by the most stringent privacy laws in the world. Get unlimited, anonymous aliases. This feature protects your main email address from spam and threats. So when you're giving out your email to a company but you want to protect your identity, StartMail can generate a shareable alias email so people can't sell your information. And they can be deleted anytime. I was curious about this when I was first given the opportunity to investigate, so I went and signed up. Flawless, seamless, easy. It's just done. And then all of a sudden, you're out of that world where stuff can be harvested and sold. You feel a lot more secure. Your cybersecurity has never been more at risk. Email snoops and scammers are taking advantage of this pandemic. This phishing has skyrocketed in the last year. Oh, it's horrible. You look in your email box, you know the stuff you get. Well, you can take control of your privacy with Start Mail before it's too late. Start securing your email privacy with Start Mail. Sign up today and you'll get 50% off your first year. Start securing your email privacy with Start Mail now. Sign up today and you'll get 50% off your first year. 50% off. Wow. Go to startmail.com slash ricochet. That's startmail with the T S T A R T mail dot com slash ricochet for 50% off your first year. Startmail.com slash ricochet. And we thank Startmail for sponsoring this, the Ricochet podcast. And now we welcome to the podcast, Dom Cotton following his graduation from Harvard Law School in 2002 and some time clerking in Washington, Senator Tom Cotton joined the U.S. Army, serving tours in Iraq and Afghanistan, and was awarded the Bronze Star. Since 2015, he served as the junior senator from Arkansas, sits on the Senate Committee for the Arm- Armed Services, and is among the favorites to represent the GOP in the 2024 presidential race. We'll get to that in a bit. But let's start with Afghanistan. Uh, So what is the situation there? Last I checked, there were people still stranded, and somehow we don't have Nightline on ABC every night telling us about the hostage crisis and how many Americans Mm -hmm. are still behind enemy lines.
2: James, thanks for having me on. And you're right that we still have an unknown number of Americans and Afghan partners stranded in Afghanistan because the Biden administration was both uh, recklessly inept in executing the withdrawal from Afghanistan, and now they are disingenuously covering up their failure. You know, they're desperate to move on to any topic besides Afghanistan. So they don't want to give us the actual numbers of persons they left behind. They keep giving it in ranges of hundreds or thousands. But when you talk about American citizens, those people who are countrymen, who have passports, plus green card holders, those who have a legal right under our laws to live and work here and travel back and forth, uh, to any other country, their families, and then finally, those Afghans who had been approved and vetted to receive a special immigrant visa for having served alongside our troops uh, for two decades, I think we're well over 10,000, maybe in the tens of thousands of persons who were left behind in Afghanistan. Uh, the Biden administration won't give us a solid number because they don't want to be judged against an actual number. They want to declare that the withdrawal was an extraordinary success, as Joe Biden said, despite the deaths of 13 Americans as well as Afghans falling off of our aircraft as they took off from Kabul uh, International Airport. Um, And they don't want to have any way that the American people can measure the full scale of this catastrophe.
1: Senator, thanks for joining us. This is Rob Long in Florida. Can, um, Can I ask just a personal question? I mean, personal to me, not personal to you. Uh, the difference between uh, the fall of Saigon and Afghanistan is that the boat people in Vietnam didn't have smartphones, and they couldn't tweet, right? They couldn't send me emails. Two weeks ago, we had Congressman Mike Gallagher on, uh, who's uh, been sort of on top of this, this topic, as you have. And uh, coincidentally, an hour later after the podcast, I got an email from a friend of mine who runs a TV show called uh, The um, United States of Al on CBS. And one of their writers— you have a lot of Afghans uh, as writers. One of their writers is a family me- had family members stuck on the other side of the fence, and they had passes, and he said, is there anything you can do? So in five frantic hours, we sort of assembled all of the people we could find, and uh, luckily Ricochet's got some, you know, we got some moxie, and we actually got that family out, and I saw it happen on my phone. Um uh, That's the upside. The downside is that now, according to a lot of people in Afghanistan, all you need to do is to send me an email, and I can get you out. Uh, And So I have a family now who sent me an email yesterday, and they said, is there anything you can do? And before I send them an email, let me me ask you, is there anything we can do, or should I tell them just to make the best of it?
2: No, Rob, it's uh, it's much— much, much harder now that right. we don't have that American presence left on the ground. I can tell you that uh, when my op- when I learned personally through uh, a friend um, in Arkansas uh, that he had someone he knew behind Taliban lines in Afghanistan, I was shocked that we still had, America again, American citizens stuck behind Taliban lines. My office works uh, around the clock the next few days and then constantly uh, through the end of the month to try to get Americans inside the wire at the airport. Um, that is much harder. It's much harder to give them sound advice that is not going to put them at greater danger now uh, because there's no American presence on the ground. For anyone who's trying to move on the ground, they're likely to face Taliban checkpoints. The Taliban control most of the known and safe border crossings in the country. Uh, it's simply much, much harder uh, to give the right advice. What do we owe them? What
1: do we owe those people? Do we owe them just a, a safety? Do we owe them a good try? Do we owe them, um, you know, a witness protection program set up somewhere in um,
2: Arkansas? What do we owe those people who helped us? I think we uh, – we, so those, those Afghans who are still in Afghanistan uh, who were approved and vetted um, under normal immigrant visa procedures – Joe Biden left behind, it, even as he was bringing out thousands of Afghans who had not been right. approved under those uh, um, channels, uh, who really who we may know nothing about, who didn't support our troops or had no particular connection to America. No, we owe them every effort uh, to continue to try to help them get out of the country. And then ultimately, if they have a valid visa and they've been thoroughly vetted so as not to be a security or a public health risk, to allow them to come to this country. We owe them a hell of a lot more than we owe the random 200,000 migrants who show up at our southern border every month that Joe Biden is just waving in, just if they utter a few magic words about fearing persecution in their home countries. Uh, We owe them a lot more than that. Uh, Yet Joe Biden is willing to um, treat those migrants on the southern border better than he treats Afghans. Who served alongside our troops, or for that matter, better than he ser- better than he treats American citizens who are still stuck in Afghanistan? Mm-hmm.
0: Senator Peter Robinson's is here. Uh, listeners won't be able to see this, but we can see you. Those don't look like letters from constituents on the wall behind you. How are your kids? Those are those are from your own
2: kids, I, I'm assuming. Uh, kids are good. Now those. Those are uh, some some artwork uh, from my little Picasso's, age six and four. Um, so, uh, no, they, <laughs> but they're uh, they are are doing well, and uh, we're trying to trying to raise them right. Um, you know. Okay, so here's a question about the future
0: for them. It begins with the past. Rob mentioned Saigon a moment ago. Saigon falls in 1975, and it is a moment of searing national humiliation. But we held on to West Berlin. Our overall position in the world remained firm. And in the 1980s, there is such a turnaround, such a resurgence of American morale that by 1989, the Berlin Wall falls. And by 1991, the Soviet Union goes out of existence. We have just suffered another national humiliation. Here's what I made a note. Walter Russell Mead in The Wall Street Journal yesterday, as I recall, Arab countries are worried India and Israel depressed. China and Russia are scornful. Can you see there's no Ronald Reagan in the wings here? We're in a new situation. Reagan takes office. People have been studying the Soviet. There are people who think they know exactly what to do. Do you see any kind of turnaround in prospect, or do we represent a spent civilizational force?
2: Uh, no, Peter. We, uh, certainly there can be a turnaround, but it's not foreordained, just like the turnaround in the 1980s was not foreordained. And, and for that matter, if Jimmy Carter hadn't been elected in 1976, uh, the uh, uh, consequences of the fall of Saigon might have been shorter lasting as well. Um, I, I will say I think the fall of Kabul and the way Joe Biden tucked America's tail between our legs and, and ran away uh, is worse than Saigon. Um, I mean, the humiliation is, is worse. Um, there was no, almost no time between our departure from Afghanistan and the fall of Kabul to a band of 7th century savages, um, unlike in Saigon when there was a couple of years. And furthermore, the the Vietnamese were not trying to follow us back home and attack us in the United States. They were content right, to rule right. their country and then allow for a springboard in the Laos and Cambodia, um, whereas— In Afghanistan, you already had the presence of al-Qaeda and ISIS. And the deputy CIA director just said this week that even more are pouring into Afghanistan to celebrate the great victory that their cause has had against the United States. Um, But then if you look at what happened, if if I could just finish, Peter, to... Of course, was a turnaround in the 1980s after the election of Ronald Reagan, and that's correct. But remember, the consequences were with us for a very long time. You did have the near-immediate fall of Laos and Cambodia and the rise of Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge. You had uh, the Cubans sending troops all over the world from across Latin America and into Angola and elsewhere in Africa. You had communist insurgencies uh, rising up uh, in Central America. You had the Russians going into Afghanistan in 1979, the fall of Iran to the uh, Ayatollahs in 1979. So the weakness projected in the fall of Saigon in 1975 led to a cascading series of foreign policy disasters. Uh, I'm afraid that that's going to be the case uh, after the fall of Kabul as well, and it may even be worse with Joe Biden as president. All
0: right. So here's my, if I may, one of the, one of the aspects about you— and your career to date that I most admire is that you are a genuinely creative office holder in the sense that you can take a difficult political situation, and I am referring now to the ad- presidency of Donald Trump, which was difficult in all kinds of ways. We don't need to go through all of that, but you proposed certain pieces of legislation that couldn't have been taken seriously pre Donald Trump, I think. In other words, you had a talent for seeing opportunities even in difficult situations. What's, what's, the, what's the feeling in this Senate now? Are there some Democrats who are – are there opportunities to get things done? Are there – is the Pentagon shaken at the level below Lloyd Austin and General Milley? Is there an opening to get good things done in the wake of this catastrophe?
2: I think one of the most urgent things we should do in the wake of this catastrophe and send a strong signal to adversaries like China and Iran and prepare the ground for a resurgent America after Joe Biden leaves office is to ensure we don't adopt Joe Biden's uh, weak uh, defense budget. And and right now that uh, is moving in the right direction. Both chambers of Congress have passed. A uh, defense bill that would increase defense spending by $25 billion over what Joe Biden requested, uh, which wouldn't have even matched inflation um, when every other department in the government, you know, spending on welfare and God knows what else, Biden wants to get double digit increases in their budget. Um, but passing a strong defense budget uh, will uh, send the right signal to countries like China and Iran that there are people in the Congress, to include Democrats, since it takes Democratic votes to pass that take our uh, security seriously, um, and it will hopefully not leave the cupboard as bare for the next president, as we saw uh, coming in to the Trump administration after Obama left office.
3: Hey, I hate to interrupt the senator here, but on the other hand, I love to interrupt the senator. It Gives me great power, and of course, it throws him off because he never knows what life will throw at you. Might be somebody just interrupting to say a commercial. Well, you do never know what life will throw at you, which is always why it's best to be prepared. Whether there's an emergency, an impromptu gathering, or even just a long day that makes you dread a trip to the supermarket. Whenever you need a great tasting meal you can trust, there's Butcher Box. Butcher Box, they're in your corner. They're delivering what you need right to your door. Each box they send has 9 to 11 pounds of meat to your choosing, options like 100% grass fed and finished beef, free ranged organic chicken, humanely raised pork, wild caught lobster tails, and wild caught Alaska salmon or sugar free bacon. You can't go wrong with any of this. And I have it, and I love having it there. Now, i got to tell you sometimes that, uh, you know, I could use the butcher box that I get stored and make myself, but I like to save it because I know that if I do run out, it's going to be there, and it's going to be better than anything else that I can get at the store and freeze. And believe me, the process, it's simple. Once you've signed up, you choose your box and your delivery frequency. They offer five boxes, four curated box options, as well as the popular custom box, so you get exactly what you and your family love. ButcherBox ships your order frozen at peak freshness and packed in a 100% recyclable box. And shipping, it's always free. And in the end, you enjoy great tasting, high quality meat delivered right to your door. Win win for everyone. And right now, ButcherBox is offering our listeners ground beef for life. You heard me right. In every order for the life of your membership, you get two pounds of ground beef. You'll never have to shop for it. Again, it'll always be there for burgers or tacos. Two pounds. Ground beef for life. What an idea. Now, it's your chance, though. It's only available for a limited time. So sign up at butcherbox.com slash ricochet and get two pounds of ground beef free. Free in every order for the life of your membership. Log on to butcherbox.com slash ricochet to claim the deal. That's butcherbox.com slash ricochet. And we thank ButcherBox for sponsoring this. The Ricochet Podcast. Senator Cotton, a while ago you espoused this strange, crazy theory that uh, coronavirus did not come from somebody slurping raw bat soup in a Wuhan wet market, but it actually came from the building down the street where they were working on things like novel coronaviruses. Since then, we've learned a lot about backdoor funding of the uh, Institute on gain of function research, but it's all muddled. And nobody in the media seems particularly to care. The Intercept document comes out with all of these little back-channel things that were going on, and there's still indifference. But you called for the investigation of Fauci and prosecution if necessary. And it seems with that and with all the other questions that we still have about where it came from that there ought to be something in Congress. There ought to be curiosity in Congress about
2: this. Is there? Among Republicans, there's certainly a lot of curiosity. And, you know, what what I said about the Wuhan labs in the very beginning is that you should just use your common sense. I mean, Wuhan is a city that's larger than New York City. Bats don't live within hundreds of miles of it. Um, Bats weren't even sold at that food market based on social media reports uh, before they were all scrubbed by the Chinese Communist Party. And yet, James, as you point out, there's this lab right down the street that researches novel coronaviruses that is run by a woman whose nickname is literally the Bat Lady. Um, And Tony Fauci dismissed that from the very beginning because he knew it would lead to a series of highly uncomfortable questions about his role and his agency's role in providing funding indirectly through American nonprofits to that lab to the tune of hundreds of thousands of taxpayer dollars. Um, that has since been confirmed. It hasn't been revealed, but it's been confirmed by those documents that The Intercept published. Uh, Tony Fauci has also been misleading Congress continuously about this. Um, And that's why I say it's time not just for Joe Biden to fire him. It is time for him to face a criminal investigation for lying to Congress. Just imagine if you had as much evidence For someone lying to Congress, not just in the Trump administration, but in the Reagan and the Bush administrations back in the day as well. Um, So I can assure you that I'm not gonna let go of this matter. And I don't think many Republicans in the Congress will either. And if we win uh, either chamber back next fall, it's gonna be a a very bad day for Tony Fauci. Mm -hmm.
1: Uh, Hey, Senator, uh, can I talk
2: about politics for one more minute? I'm
1: not gonna do anything, um, I'm not gonna ask anything rude, like, are you running for president? Uh, or why aren't you running for president? Or why won't you tell us you're running for president? <laughs> um, I'll let you, you know, you, but I, I, I recommend that you have some answers ready because they're coming at some point. Um, we, we, had a, we had a general, we had a, a recall election in California, and um, Gavin Newsom was pretty much solidly returned to office. And we were talking about it before he joined us. And one of the things, one of my constant refrains is the problem with the Republican Party is we don't have enough rhinos. And as a rhino, basically, is what I've been called, uh, I kind of feel that's true. A big party's got to have a big tent. That's how it works. And the smaller we get, we end up, the Republican, the the National Republican Party, could end up looking like the California Republican Party small, ineffective, rudderless, leaderless, uh, chasing each new weird fad.
2: what do you think about Rhino? Well, uh, in a country as large and diverse as ours, you have to have a large coalition to win national elections. And it helps to have a broad bench uh, across all 50 states uh, and also helps the residents of those states as well. So you take someone like, you know, a Charlie Baker in Massachusetts or a Larry Hogan in Maryland. Um, I, I doubt that Charlie or Larry would get elected uh, in Wyoming. But, you know, uh, I doubt that— Or Arkansas, for that matter. Or Arkansas. But you know what? Uh, There's a lot of politicians in Arkansas and Wyoming who might not be able to get elected in Maryland and Massachusetts. And I I don't agree uh, with some of those more uh, um, centrist Republicans on a lot of issues. But I'd much sooner sooner see those states governed by a moderate Republican than a far-left Democrat. And that's why it's always— It's always important in politics, whether you're talking about governor's races or Senate races or House races, to have candidates um, who are not just sound on the issues and strong and courageous, but are also good fits for their states. And states have their own peculiar histories and cultures. And what works in one place is not going to work in the other place. Um, And, you know, the the Democrats right now are are blaming uh, Joe Manchin for all their troubles. I can tell you that (laughs) they've got a lot more than just Joe Manchin who is bucking at their reckless – taxing and spending bill but one way to put what you're saying rob in, in concrete terms the democrats are probably better off if they had 10 or 15 joe mansions because then it wouldn't be a 50-50 senate um so i'd much rather see us elect republicans in say new england or the west coast who are a little bit to the left of me on some issues than see democrats uh in monolithic control of those states because you see tragically what it's led to in a place like california right so um
1: if we could project ourselves a few years ahead and there's a debate dais in New Hampshire, there's a bunch of candidates. I'm not suggesting you'll be there, but I, I full disclosure, I hope you are. Um, there will be some people on there who think that the previous Republican who was in the White House was is a big problem for the party. And there are some that are going to embrace some of the good stuff he did and probably – you know, badmouth, some of the bad stuff that he is. And it's entirely possible that he'll be up there, too. What advice would you give if you weren't a senator, but you were a political consultant to those people up on that dais? If you weren't you, what would you advise you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you like it? I was. I thought I was very elegant. That was a very it was, sophisticated, quick question. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm. trying to like come to your level. I went to Yale. You went to Harvard. So I'm trying to talk down a little bit. But... So,
2: um, so I won't speculate about what's going to happen three elections out, since we have an election in places like Virginia, New Jersey in a couple of months, and then the midterms, and then the presidential election. Um, I, I will say that. Uh, on a lot of issues, uh, President Trump moved the party in the direction it needed to go, a uh, direction um, I had been trying to move it from the Congress for a couple of years on questions like immigration, for instance, or, or trade. Um, I didn't agree with him on every single issue, obviously. Uh, you know, maybe most notably, I strongly opposed the First Step Act. Uh, I thought it was a terrible idea to release serious and repeat felons in, in the middle of a rising wave of crime and drug abuse. Um, but uh, the former president moved the, the party uh, at the elite level in a direction where I think our voters had wanted to go for some time. Um, some, of those issues, some issues may be overtaken by events, um, you know, as you go along, and especially as you get further away from when they were uh, very highly motivating, you know, like top marginal tax rates now are not nearly the issue that they were in 1980 for Ronald Reagan when they're in the mid-30s as opposed to the, the mid-70s. Um, what every candidate in, in any race, to include a race for president, has to do is um, be his own man or woman, and, and have his own agenda and his own plan that addresses the genuine needs uh, of um, our people, and lay it out in an articulate, compelling fashion. Uh, no one gets elected by being, you know, a, a simulacrum of Ronald Reagan or Barack Obama or Donald Trump or anyone else. And anyone who tries to inherit another politician's coalition learns the hard way that those coalitions are are not just transferable. I mean, that's what Hillary Clinton tried to do in in 2016 and it didn't work for her. Um, A lot of the Obama coalition either didn't come out to vote for her or they voted for Donald Trump instead. And in many cases, um, coalitions are particular to a single politician. If you look at the success that uh, Barack Obama and Donald Trump had when they were on the ballot versus uh, uh, the, some of the uh, struggles that their parties had when they weren't on the ballot. You know, Obama famously just couldn't transfer his coalition to Democrats running in 2009 or 2010 or 2014 or, for that matter, 2016. We had similar troubles in 2018.
3: I mean, this is the last question here. Let's say we do win. A lot of people who want the conservatives or the gop there is a difference to take back control fear that once they get there it's going to be the same thing that the leviathan will stagger on as bloated as ever in this 3.5 trillion dollar bill who knows how many things are there that will be funded into eternity in perpetuity and nobody will get them out of root and branch in other words we send them in and they don't do much it's a common complaint that people have uh, so what would you say to people who say there's really no point because once they get in there they start uh, they they've swapped their blood for swamp water and they're lost
2: well the broadest level I just say you know look at what we've seen in the first eight months of the biden administration whether it's the humiliation um, in Afghanistan or the fiasco at the border uh, rising crime or rapidly rising inflation speaking of the 1970s as we were earlier um, but more More concretely, I'd say, you know, should we take back the Congress next year and the White House in 2024? um, One of the things that we need to do as a party that didn't happen uh, in the first year of the Trump administration is, uh, as we used to say in the Army, move fast and strike hard. Four years can seem like a very long time. uh, But when you're dealing uh, with our systems of checks and balances from a legislative matter, or you're dealing with armies of liberal lawyers uh, using executive power through the cabinet departments and the agencies, four years can go by very fast. Um, And we saw some of the consequences of not moving fast enough. You know, if if President Trump had declared a border emergency and started building the wall in February of 2017, it would have been done by January of this year. Um, Or if he had abrogated the terrible Iran nuclear deal in January of 20. Uh, 17, and not waited until the summer of 2018, Iran might not have been able to stagger along uh, with its um, devastated economy until January of this year. So I think you need to go, go in and have a very uh, concrete and fixed plan about what needs to be done and start doing it quickly and not take a single day for granted, um, not only to achieve those goals, James, but also to give the assurances to people who feel like they've seen this move before and they haven't been satisfied with the plot line.
0: Senator Peter here with a final question and I'm hoping to dig out a little bit of good news here. The midterm elections coming up. I keep thinking that it ought to be pretty good news for Republicans because the Democrats have lurched so far to the left. Nancy Pelosi is embracing the AOC agenda. So, for that matter, is Chuck Schumer, who's afraid of a primary challenge from her up in New York. And so, to my astonishment, is the president of the United States, who could have run as amiable Uncle Joe, the guy from Scranton, the backsliper from Scranton, but he is not. So I think, okay. But on the other hand, these are professional politicians. They can read the polls, too. So if 2022 is looking pretty good for our side, what do they do? trying to jam through $3.5 trillion in more spending. What are they doing pounding on Joe Manchin? If the Democrats are as smart as I think they are, then maybe it doesn't look good for us. On the other hand, you're pretty smart, too, in spite of having attended Harvard. How's it look? How do the midterms look? That's the question. How do the midterms look?
2: Um, I, I think they look increasingly good Peter. Uh, I mean, there's still a lot of work left to be done. Stop the worst part of the Obama agenda. Um, and that's the way we'll ultimately su- succeed next year. Um, there are a lot of, you know, kind of historical or structural factors on our side. We have an extremely large minority in the House. I think it's the largest 100. So we don't have to win 40 or 50 seats. We have to win five seats. Um, we're 50-50 in the Senate, as strong as we can be without being in control. Um, the seats are pretty evenly divided um, in the Senate. In the House, uh, we actually have Quite a few more Democrats on, in Trump districts than we have Republicans in Biden districts. So, so structurally and historically, things are lining up well for us, but more important are the abject failures of the Biden administration, the failure to get the coronavirus under control and now to start unconstitutionally using the power of the federal government to mandate vaccines to people uh, and make businesses the enforcers. Um, the inflation that everyone sees anytime they go to the gas station or the grocery store humiliation we've seen in Afghanistan, I'm afraid we'll continue to see. Those are the issues that are going to matter most to the voters next year. And you can see from Joe Biden's plummeting poll ratings um, that they're already starting to render their judgment. And Joe Biden doesn't have a deep reservoir of goodwill and support either. I mean, he, he doesn't have the level of enthusiasm among Democratic voters that Barack Obama did and, uh, or, for that matter, that Donald Trump did among Republican voters. That, that's going to hurt him as well as he tries to recover. I think the Democrats are, are just have on ideological blinders, and um, they feel like they've give, been given a once-in-generation opportunity to blow through $6 trillion on their work priorities, and my God, they're going to do it. Uh, and I think some of them, like Nancy Pelosi, are willing to use uh, the vulnerable Democrats as cannon fodder, um, just like she did to pass Obamacare. She knew that they were going to lose some of those seats, probably not as many as they did. I think Nancy Pelosi is done anyway. She may not even make it to the election. She may resign and go be Joe Biden's ambassador to Italy or the Vatican. Uh, oh, so so she's is,
0: looking for a last glorious moment. She wants to go over the cliff wrapped in a flag. Is that it? A
2: little bit A little bit of inside baseball here is every time the Biden administration uh, releases a new roster of nominees to ambassador positions around the world, I always check for Italy and Vatican, which has not yet been filled. <laughs> and it's very convenient. Oh, the really? Speaker, the Speaker of the House— Uh, who has already said this is her last term as speaker, self-consciously styles herself as the quintessential Italian-American politician uh, in the United (laughs) States. And wouldn't it be nice for her if she she rides off in the sunset, as you say, passing their massive (laughs) reckless spending bill uh, and then gets nominated to go to Italy or the Vatican? Yeah, when I think of
3: Nancy Pelosi. I think of the quintessential Italian grandma, you know, from pasta with an apron with dust on and a little bit of a mustache there. Come to me a little bump nose. Yeah. <laughs> Senator Cotton, thank you so much for joining us today. When we see you on the stage in New Hampshire, we will know that you'll have a small little earpiece with Rob Long in the wings giving you, <laughs> you know, tactical information that you need to Happy know. Happy
1: to do it. Happy to serve. Good <laughs> luck. gentlemen.
3: Thanks so much. Have Bye. fun with those kids, too. When you guys brought up 2022, like, we just had an election, didn't we? I'm thinking about the midterms. I suppose it's good, but it gives me a pain. Right. It gives me it gives me a pain. I have a friend that I was talking to the other day who had a similar pain, and it was back pain. Well, it's nothing to do with that. Well, that's you know, the end. Age. But also, well, it also came from the fact that he didn't take our advice 300 podcasts to go and get one no, of the mattresses sure. we were talking about. I don't have that problem. But. He does because he's got a lousy mattress, so I told him which one to get so he doesn't have a back pain when he wakes up in the morning. But here's the deal. Uh, You know, after you spend all that money on a comfortable mattress, it would be ridiculous not to put as much thought and care and effort into the sheets you're going to be putting on that thing, right? Right. And that's because because Bolden Branch exists, and as long as they exist, there's just simply no other option. That's where you go. Bolden Branch knows high-quality sleep does not stop at the mattress. The ultra-soft organic sheets are transparently sourced and produced in safe, fair conditions. You will feel a difference, and you'll know that you're making one. Founded in 2014 by a husband and wife team, Scott and Missy Tannen, and all getting down to a choice to do what's right, they wanted to give sleepers more choices for high-quality sheets at a fair price. And since starting out, they've been building a fairer and better supply chain for the improvement of the entire future textile industry. The Signature Hemmed Sheets are beloved best for good reason. They get softer with every wash. Trust me on this. Buttery soft now. Lightweight. 100% organic cotton sateen weave. That's perfect for all seasons. That's why I love them. I mean, frankly, I'm in the transitional point here now between the hot summer and the cold winter. And even though, yeah, you got your air conditioning and your heat, you got your own body furnace going on, these sheets are just perfect for regulating a wonderful night's sleep at the temperature that you want. That's why I sleep well and wake refreshed. Refreshed. You too can do the same. Experience the best sheets you've ever felt. Choose Boland Branch. You can try them worry-free for thirty nights, by the way, with free shipping and free returns. Our listeners, which would be you, get an exclusive fifteen percent off your first set of sheets with promo code Ricochet at Branch dot com. That's Branch, B O L L and Branch dot com. Promo code Ricochet. And we thank Boland Rents for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. <laughs> well, gentlemen, before we go, a few other things of note. Uh, Rob, I have to ask you, since you're in the comedy business, opinions on from, from a pro on Norm Macdonald, who right. sadly yeah. died mm. at the age of 61 after 10 years, apparently, of dealing with cancer and not telling anybody about it. Good for him, although you can sort of tell yeah. by the end of his autobiography how he was looking towards the future. But I love the fact that my Twitter feed this week was just... The best of norm. Every time I turned it on, somebody would have another yep. clip from this guy. And I you know, flailed at myself for not paying more attention to him recently, not seeking him out. It's just he was just sort of out there and when Norm swam into your orbit, that's great, we're gonna enjoy some norm, but now I feel like I've cheated myself and we're all cheated of another ten years with what was a fairly brilliant, interesting, idiosyncratic comic
1: persona. Yeah, I mean um First of all, it's hard to separate the man, right? Because he, he did—he had this, he struggled with this disease, and it took him. And you know, he didn't write about it. He wasn't on Oprah about it. He was just kind of like shrugging. The second thing I noticed, and I—I I, I guess I knew this intuitively. I mean, I always found him extremely funny, but it, it, it definitely an acquired taste. Um, but one of the things I noticed, just looking at all those clips, as you said, is the, the two things. One is the absolute power he had. To make other professionals mm-hmm. right laugh, right. I mean, the 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 occupational rule, the professional courtesy rule in show business or comedy circles is: if you say something funny and I'm also funny, the most you'll get out of me is a um, yeah. That's good. Oh, that's fun. That's good. No, no, you're not. You're not gonna get a laugh. Yeah, uh, and he got huge laughs. And then when you look at him, the one thing I saw like. You look at the clips, all of a sudden it struck me that he is kind of always smiling. Mm-hmm. He is always kind of repressing like something like he's about to laugh too. And he's always kind of twinkling in a way. So like you're always part of the joke. It rarely seems like he's angry or he's making a joke at you. He always feels like he's also telling you that this is a little nuts, what we're doing here. And um you know it's interesting. It's like um, people would say near the. I mean, I saw, when I was growing up, I thought David Letterman was so funny and he was so ironic and so funny. And then you watch David Letterman later in his later years, and it just seemed like he's this dyspeptic old man, perpetually furious, furious that he had to do this, furious mm-hmm. at you for watching. Um, and I think Norm Macdonald never had that. He always seemed like. He thought it was funny, and he thought – I mean, there's one moment – I don't know if you've seen these Comedy Central rows where people go up, and they say just a cascade of incredibly filthy things, I mean, incredibly nasty, horrible things about each other. And uh, and he went to one, and he uh, it was the, for the comedian Bob Saget, the actor comedian Bob Saget, and he went and stood there and just told a bunch of, like, really bland dad jokes, like from the 101 Book of Insults. And at first, you think, what's he doing? And then it's really funny. And then I'll tell you what he's doing. Yeah. He's just saying, this it is was, so it it stupid. But not with, without a mean bone in his body. The guy was like, he just, that's kind of how he was. And I suspect that um, one of the things that we're missing now is that there's nobody else doing that. There's nobody he else He was able doing to do an anti Kaufman routine thing. without the strange, I mean,
3: enduring that Bob Saget roast yeah. was was almost Kaufman-esque, but it was a great
1: bit. Um but, you know, but, but I, I, as an example, because you mentioned Andy Kaufman, like, I, I remember, like, talking to somebody, a friend of mine, well, Harry Shearer, who's been a guest here many times, and talking about Andy Kaufman, I was like, he, I never got it. I mean, I got it on Taxi. I thought it was very funny on Taxi, but I never got it. And here's what Harry said. Harry said his whole thing was making the audience right. uncomfortable. Right. That's the easiest thing in the world to do, make people uncomfortable. That's like anybody can do that. I'm trying to make them that's laugh. That's the hard part. That's the hard like, part. That's hard. And that's what Norm Macdonald did. And you never felt uncomfortable. You just felt like, this is funny. This is funny. His I mean, One of his famous jokes he did like five times in a row w- during the O.J. Simpson trial when he was doing Weekend Update on SNL. It was just that the punchline was just something like, and that's why O.J. killed her. And everybody laughed because we were edited in this weird world where we weren't supposed to say what we all knew, which was that O.J. Simpson was a murderer and killed his ex-wife with a knife and a waiter. And he said it. And he said it in a way that was sort of flat and at that list, and it was just hilarious. You got him fired. And um, it's uh, – it, yeah, got him fired with a lot of other things too. But, but – uh, and also, you know, it's like, you, this, like notice the people. Here's the – and I'm, I'm, I don't go too long. I know I've already gone. The other thing is I, I don't mean to do this. I hate it when people do this. But notice the broad base of people in this polarized partisan age for whatever, you know, TM, whatever that cliche is, who really liked his humor. And there's a lot of people on Twitter mourning the loss of Norm MacDonald, who you and I see on Ricochet. And you and I talk to at you know, Ricochet events. A lot of conservatives, a lot of liberals, too. Um, that's, I think, a sign of genius, you know.
0: A lot of people mourning his death who won't mourn each other's. <laughs> <laughs> that's the perfect way to put it. Mm, unfortunate. Um, no,
3: you're right. I, and your remarks about Letterman are true. When I was watching Letterman as a kid, I just thought, as a youth, I should say, in my 20s, I thought this was a brilliant reinvention of the whole genre. And then later you go back and all of a sudden what you see missing in him is what you saw in Norm Macdonald, an enjoyment and a generosity, and a a, 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 um, a human spirit that had that, that eternally had that, that smile that Rob noted, as opposed to Letterman, who eternally just has his face sort of uh, frozen in this ironic rickety, of, um,
1: of yeah, and it's easy to tr- easy to mock. You know, like it's yeah. hard. Like I don't know. I mean, it, there are other people like this. So there's a problematic character, Bill Cosby, and Bill Cosby used to people used to say Bill Cosby, like you ever worry about somebody stealing your material? And Cosby would say they can steal if they wanted it. They're not gonna get any laughs. It has to come from me, not because of his timing or mm-hmm. anything like that. It, it was like in, inextricably linked to him. And I feel like, like I remember. Here's a dumb story, but I'm gonna I'm gonna. I'm going to tell it anyway because we have like I think we have two minutes. Um, a friend of mine told the story that Letterman, the Letterman voice was so indelible. That there was a period of, jam- I, I mean, I know you remember this, where everyone was kind of doing it, mm. like people were just, yeah. oh gosh, oh golly, mm-hmm. my gosh, my god. We was told like the doing audience, an and you voice. all know
3: how painful that can be. Yeah,
1: I know. Yeah, right, everybody was doing this, and my premise, remembering, reminding, uh, he was in an apartment once, and they had a, like a bunch of young people, and it was like West Hollywood or somewhere, and uh, there's one guy who was really infected with that virus, the talking like Letterman, and um, I guess they had uh, a big. potluck dinner party at one guy's house and my friend brought a a tray of brownies and like two days later um, was knock on the door and it was his neighbor bringing back the um, the the clean pan and he, he, he delivered it like this oh gosh, oh golly here's your brownie pan it's like you know, too much, <laughs> too much in imitating, too much of the voice. It just didn't work. And that's kind of the difference between somebody like, you know, Letterman, who was great when he was uh, when he was great. He was great. And somebody like Norm MacDonald, who took us all the way through, you know, pretty much his whole life. It's and right. also, we don't know. not We don't know nothing about Norm MacDonald. I don't know what his kids. He left his son. What his son's name is. I don't know where he lived. That wasn't the thing.
0: You know, was Norm MacDonald a writer? you look at letterman and you feel as though he's people have produ- people have produced that material he's got he's got writers working for certainly carson did we all we, we know some of carson's writers to, yeah. to this day but you get it, it, mcdonalds i'm asking this question as a layman in total ignorance nor mcdonald just seems to arise from the character when that yeah, happens i'm suspicious i think probably actually he worked pretty hard on that material what do you think
1: well, he definitely worked hard on it, but I don't, I don't, I, I don't, I can't think of whether he ever wrote for anybody else. I, I, I don't know how he could do that. It was sort of like Letterman. I don't think Letterman could have written for anybody else either. Um, but I, you know, he had, uh, and also he, you, you couldn't really, I, you can't really imitate a joke or point of view for him. You, you right. never really, you, you, you kind of had to invisible. see it on his face, like his face was laughing, right. like it was, a, it was. Um, you know, he reminds me a little bit of like the old relationship that um, Johnny Carson had with George Goebel. And so George Goebel was like kind of a 30s, 40s, 50s comedian, uh, and uh, he was also on Hollywood Square. So like if you're if you're yeah, if you're if you're age super ancient, you remember him lower, from the lower movies. Lower left, if, on the left in the, uh, cl- yeah, in yeah. the Cliff Arquette chair. Yeah, yeah, if you're merely ancient, you remember him from Hollywood Squares. Uh, and but he would go on. I think he he did this. It was an old joke, but he. Well he was doing Johnny Carson once and he walked on and George Gobel I and mean, he's like, you know, basically somebody had cancelled, so they got George Gobel, right? And Gobel comes in, sits down, waves people, and sits and just turns to Johnny Carson and says, Did you ever feel like life was a tuxedo and you're a pair of brown shoes? <laughs> it's a really funny line. But the but you realize that there were some people that just had a face. That Johnny Carson thought was funny, he started cracking up immediately. And there are some people like that who did that. I think it was somebody Groucho Marx had somebody, I forget who it was, just looked at you, and you were ready to laugh. And you could see Norm Macdonald with, on Conan or on Date Letterman or on all the other shows, other comedians just ready to laugh. That's you know pretty good. People want to laugh,
3: and if people will yeah. like the people. People, people will <laughs> like the people who make them laugh, which you mentioned before, Rob. You said the 101 Insults book. I had the one hundred and one insult books. Yeah. And I memorized an awful lot of them. And so I sort of got my start as a Rickles like insult comic in junior <laughs> high school. And I would dole those things out and I I would slay them. I would absolutely slay them. And then one day my nemesis showed a copy no. of the book to me. He'd found my, he'd found my uh, material, and he too, the Rosetta Stone, <laughs> he too had copied some of them in, 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 and burned them into his brain so that he could dole them out as well. But he couldn't right. deliver. He had no delivery. It was flat, so he couldn't work with the material. So here I am, all of a sudden, my, I'm revealed as an imposter, but at the same time, I'm given more respect because now they see, ah, you brought the material to life as opposed to, you know, Jeff here who just couldn't do it. So, yes, that book did exist, and I wonder if you had a copy of it, and if so, if you know who wrote it, because I owe this guy probably my entire career.
1: I don't know. I, I do remember, though, I, I probably have to say. Louis Oh,
3: aren't you? So you do know. I, Well, I will always remember Lewis Safian wrote the 101. Just as I remember that when I was in high school speech and debate doing humorous and terp, I, I slayed them in North Dakota statewide with a New Yorker piece by a guy named F.P. Tullius, who wrote one more thing and then
1: vanished. I,
3: it, it's, a, it's a strange world, the world of comedy. A comedy writing out there. No, no, do, no, do
1: you remember this? I know we have to yeah. run, but can I ask you this? Well, 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 uh, I'll ask you this important question after you do your important work.
3: All right, the important thing that I have to say is this podcast was brought to you by StarkMeal, by ButcherBox, and by Bolden Branch. Please support them for supporting us, and, of course, if you can join Ricochet today, that would just be icing on the cake. Not icing on the steak, because ButcherBox stuff is great, but you don't want to put sugar on top. Listen to the best of Ricochet Radio Show hosted by moi this weekend on the Radio America Network. Check your local listings, as we like to say. And, of course, you know what's coming later. We're asking you to give us six stars on Apple. That's right. Turn it up to 11. Do it Spinal Tap style. Eh, If they only let you do five, give us five. That's great, right? The reviews help the show to surface. New listeners discover us, keeps the whole thing going, and Ricochet will be here for episode 1,000
1: and more. Rob, you had a question or statement. Here's my question. Do you remember this? Do you remember that you could buy a book in the early 70s that was double-sided, so you would turn it one way and then turn it over, so two books in one, but like printed this way? And on one side was... Uh, 100 or 1,001 Polish jokes. And on the other side was 1,001 Italian Mm. jokes. And this was seen as perfectly hilarious and legitimate. And People just did it all the time. Like on TV, they were making uh, RG Bunker was making Polak jokes and Italian jokes, and that was part of the American culture. Absolutely, was the robust making fun of your ethnic origins and even saying it and even conjuring it up today. The fact that i have actually made people think of this it, should this this entire podcast come with a trigger warning? I have created we'll be can- a thought. We we'll will canceled. Yeah,
3: we did not have Italian jokes in in North Dakota because we didn't have Italians. So the idea of, of using them, we had Polak jokes and, uh, and the yeah, rest of it. And right. I'm sure that within the Polish community, there are regionalities that they would make fun of, right? I mean, Peter Robinson, you, I know that when you were a kid, Pol- you, was it Polish jokes for you or was
0: it? There, there were a lot of Polish jokes. There were some Italian jokes. I'm just thinking I loved he became totally political. I mean, he really did become politically unacceptable. We're talking about Norm MacDonald. I love Jackie Mason, and now immediately coming to mind is Jackie Mason. I had a cousin; he was half Jewish and half Polish. He was a superintendent. He couldn't figure out how to repair the plumbing, but he owned the building. Nobody would do that right, these right, days. Right, right. But it wasn't. It was within our living memory that that sort of thing still worked, even though, and it, it worked in part because by then it had already
1: become a little bit outrageous, right? But no one had heard that right. when, when, when Jackie Mason appeared in Broadway. No one had heard those jokes in 100 years, and they were yeah, – they killed. True. They killed. He did this one right. joke. like, you know, people you'll, – uh, you'll always – you can tell who's Jewish and who's Gentile when they leave the theater after watching his show. And his show was like – you know, he has a very thick Yiddish accent, and it goes uh, – the Gentiles, as they walk out, will go, yeah, he's funny. He's funny. And the Jews will always say, mm, too Jewish. It's <laughs> <laughs> <Yes. Pilled. laughs>
3: He took Poconos, <laughs> right, and transplanted it to Broadway. He took the stuff that had been out there dormant, freeze-dried uh, right. since the Poconos had, uh, had died when they are killed by air travel and air conditioning, and brought it there. And we love that stuff, but you it, it, can't do it anymore because yeah. it's you injurious. You can't do that. You can't Absolutely do that. That's can. true. You have to identify people now by... by, by um, by political characteristics by you know whether or not they're a red maga hat wearing person the rest you it, now you can say that this is probably better in one respect because if we're not making broad ethnic characterizations about people that's probably better in the long run but on the other hand those broad ethnic characterizations seems to have moved to corporate hr training sessions where they're taken mm. deadly seriously uh, hold on a second green side. <laughs> oh, Lord, I tell you, never hire. Well, I can't say. Yeah, right. uh, thank you, everybody, that? for listening. I do remember that line. I love that. Uh, that was an infinitely applicable joke, which you could give to any ethnic group whatsoever, right. and people got it. Well, there, we're canceled. That'll do. I guess we won't make 562 because we made such a mess of 561, but we broke some news, had a great time. Great to see you guys. Yes, Can boss? I just <laughs> interrupt you, woman? I know
1: we know. at uh, but I just want to say one thing. Here's why we're not canceled. We are not canceled because we took the initiative uh, about six months ago to move our server and all of our, like, you know, all of the pressure points they can put on a media company they don't like. And we moved it to a private, separate, uh, uh, ideologically aligned and uh, intellectually and uh, entrepreneurially aligned um, uh, enterprise with us. Um, We did that. And we did that because we want to be here. Now, all of that costs money. And so if you're listening and you want to vote for Freedom of Media and you want to vote for not being canceled, um, please join today.
3: I I really want to know what that is because now I have a vision of a guy with six hard drives and a laptop in the Cayman Islands sitting in a small room with a pistol on the table.
0: (laughs) Well, not the Cayman Islands, but you're not far off.
3: (laughs) Gentlemen, it's been great. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you in the comments at Ricochet 4.0 next week. See <laughs> you next week, boys. Stop checking, filling my life, stay laugh. laugh. Don't you know what
1: everyone mean? wants to laugh? <laughs> my dad sent me an act to my son.
0: But be a comical one, <laughs> they'll be standing in line <laughs> for those old monkeys on monkey shops. Now you could
3: study Shakespeare and be quite elite. And you could charm the critics and have nothing to eat.
2: Just look on a banana peel, the world's Make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh. Make, make them laugh, don't you know, everyone wants to laugh. My grandpa said go out and tell them a joke. But give it plenty of hope, make them roar, make them scream. Take them all, but a wall.
1: You're the dancer with great. You're doing all over
2: the place. And then you get a great big customer cry in the face. Make them laugh, make them laugh, make them laugh. Make them laugh. Don't you all the.
0: Ricochet. Join the conversation. They'll be standing in line for the world.